You're listening to the Exegete Podcast by Gary Livengood. This is Lesson 7 in our series on Habakkuk. Hello, friends. Welcome back to our study in Habakkuk. This session tonight will hopefully finish Chapter 1 and begin Chapter 2. You might recall that uh, the first four verses of Habakkuk Chapter 1, Habakkuk kind of complains to the living God and and, uh, can't figure out why God is doing the things he's doing or not doing the things that Habakkuk thinks he should be doing. And in verses 5 to 11, Habakkuk, uh, God answers Habakkuk and says, well, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do, and here it is. And Habakkuk, probably not real um, enthused about God's answer because the Lord's answer is, I'm going to bring Babylon in, and uh, all those things you just complained about and asked about, I'm going to deal with them. But again, probably not in the way Habakkuk wanted because God was going to bring Babylon in for judgment on the nation of Judah, his own people. And the outcome of that ultimately was that Judah was, uh, Jerusalem was destroyed, the walls were knocked down, and the temple was burned about 20 years or so after Habakkuk's prophecy here in these three chapters. So I want to read um, this time from chapter 1 verses 12 to 17, as now Habakkuk answers God's statements. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We will not die. You, O Lord, have appointed them to judge, and you, O Rock, have established them to correct. And he's talking about Babylon there. Verse 13, your eyes are too pure to approve evil. And you cannot look on wickedness with favor. And then it's almost like Habakkuk says, Yet, why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? Why have you made men like the fish of the sea, like creeping things without a ruler over them? The Chaldeans bring all of them up with a hook. They drag them away with their net and gather them together in their fishing net. Therefore they rejoice and are glad. Therefore they offer a sacrifice to their net and they burn incense to their fishing net because through these things their catch is large and their food is plentiful. Will they therefore empty their net and continue slaying nations without sparing? difficult words from Habakkuk. He's very perplexed. Uh, We talked about verse 12 last time, and we see this kind of up and down sense, uh, even within one phrase to the next, that Habakkuk, he seems to speak something true and good, and and then immediately his very next statement is something that he's struggling with, that he's maybe depressed about, um, that he just can't figure out. He's very perplexed. So in verse 13, this pattern continues, he rightly states some pretty good theology here. Maybe this is sort of an, an up statement. He says, your eyes are too pure to approve evil. You cannot look on wickedness with favor. Can, can you see then Habakkuk, he makes this great statement, positive, true statement, but then in this perplexity of mine, as I mentioned when I was reading the text, you can almost put the word yet in there because He then goes on and says, Yet you look with favor on the treacherous. You do nothing when the wicked swallow up the righteous. Now, 
don't don't despair, friends, because we've all been there probably in some way, some uh, point in our lives when we look around and everything is perplexing and we can't figure out what God's doing. Maybe we're suffering some very difficult time and we go, Lord, Lord why are you allowing this? Even the psalmist uh, says in, in Psalm 10, very similar words, and this is, certainly isn't the only place in the book of Psalms where we read something like this, but Psalm 10, verses 1 to 6, we see kind of a similar statement here by uh, David when he says, Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In pride the wicked hotly pursue the afflicted. Let them be caught in the plots when they, which they have devised. For the wicked boasts of his heart's desire, and the greedy man curses and spurns the Lord. The wicked in their haughtiness of his countenance, countenance does not seek God. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his adversaries, he snorts at them. He says to himself, I will not be moved. Throughout all generations, I will not be in adversity. And you can see the thinking there by the psalmist that God is just not keeping up with the situation with the wicked. Um, and they just keep winning and triumphing and good people, righteous people suffer. Certainly very much the, uh, the thinking here of Habakkuk in chapter 1. And what happens to us here? We get, up, we get caught up in temporal thinking. We got, get caught up in temporal circumstances. And the problem is our, pe our perspective is so short and so circumstantial. What appears to be happening, please remember this, dear brother and sister in Christ. Um, believe me, I say this to myself as well. What appears to be happening, happening is not the whole reality of our lives. Not by a long shot. And we see this over and over in Scripture. For example, in, in Acts chapter 8, the, uh, the church was growing uh, very, very strongly, a tremendous growth in the early church. But then this problem happens in chapter 8, verse 1 of Acts. Um, and it talks about the persecution that breaks out. It says, Saul, and we know that was Paul, was in hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women, and he would put them in prison. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Isn't that interesting? So this event is called the diaspora. We know that word is dispersion. And when the uh, persecution came against the early church, they may have been shocked by it. But it wasn't simply what was happening at the moment. God had a bigger plan. And obviously he allowed it. He didn't have to, but he did. But you see there, the result in verse 4 was the people who left Jerusalem and its environs, they went out all over the place, not just in Israel, by the way, but all over. And what did they do? They took the gospel with them. And they went about preaching the word of God. So what initially looked like terrible circumstances 
and uh, God was not protecting his people and not coming through, turned out to be for the advancement of the kingdom. Really, really an important uh, little principle there, I believe, or not a little principle, a big important principle. Additionally, one more example of this, the birth of Jesus uh, between two uh, seem, what seem to be very godly people, um, of course that would be Joseph and Mary I'm talking about, two great godly people, and we know that uh, Joseph and Mary had been betrothed, uh, it's a little bit like being engaged, but something really rough happened that had to just kill Joseph, and here's what it says in Matthew 1, 18 and 19, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. Now, Joseph, again, being a righteous man, and he loved Mary and believed her to be a righteous woman, a young, much younger than him, but a righteous young lady, this had to just kill him. This guy was probably devastated by this news that uh, his godly betrothed wife uh, is pregnant. And pregnant out of wedlock. And the, uh, the problems that would have been associated that, with that in the culture were really, really difficult. So he may have looked around and said, God, why did you allow this? Why would this happen to me and to us? It was really hard on him, I'm sure. Um, a righteous man dealing with this disappointment and sorrow and hurt. But, but, verse 20, then we see, but when Joseph had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And the angel goes on and says that, you know, this is going to be ultimately the Savior of the world. Hey, that's not too bad. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And by the way, the Old Testament name for Jesus, Yeshua, means Savior. And the angel says he will save his people from their sins. So the initial disappointment, sorrow, hurt, and uh, questions that, that Joseph may have rightly had, God had a better plan. Joseph's perspective was temporal and very limited. God had a much, much greater plan that he was working out. So what's important here, whether it's Habakkuk or any other circumstance in, in your life, um, please remember this. This is so important. We walk by faith, not by sight. And that's from Paul's writing in 2 Corinthians 5-7. We walk by faith, not by sight so important. And, and by the way, interestingly also, the context of that 2 Corinthians 5-7 verse um, is this, verse 6, Paul says, always be of good courage. And right after the verse, verse 8, he says, we are of good courage. It's really interesting to me that this idea of courage seems to be uh, surrounding the realization that we walk by faith, not by sight. So maybe part of the practice of walking by faith, not by sight, is the necessity of courage in our life. Uh, that's an interesting uh, context for that, and I think probably has a lot of value. Now back to Habakkuk. Um, Habakkuk, you know, maybe had lost sight of this in his own life at this particular moment, that we, we walk by faith, not by sight, and was thinking in a very temporal sense not in a greater God-sized perspective. 
he goes on in chapter 1, verses 14 to 17, and talks about this, this fishing analogy. He compares uh, humanity to fish and whatever this means, creeping things in the oceans. And he talks about the Babylonians as uh, fishermen. Now, one of the things I want to mention here about Habakkuk is, and this is something that we, can, that we humans do, you know, when we're confused or angry or irritated or ill-tempered, uh, we say things that aren't true. When we're arguing or fighting, we say things that may not be accurate at all in order to maintain our, our argument. And I think that this is part of what Habakkuk's doing here. He's irritated, maybe mad at God, he's perplexed, and so he's, he's using a metaphor or an analogy that really isn't very accurate at all. And I understand why he's doing that. He's, he's mad. He's disappointed. One of the things that, um, if you're married, you, you know this very well, um, you might say in the moment of an argument to your spouse, well, you never do blank, fill in the blank. You never do this. Or, on the other hand, you might say, well, you always do this with the, with the uh, implication that you shouldn't, but you always do. Those are things that are not fair in the, to say to your spouse in the midst of an argument. Hardly ever would a statement like that be true. You never do this. You always do this. By the way, here's a little colloquial tip about marriage. Never say never and always avoid always. I like that one. I've used that one uh, for my own sake. Never say never and always avoid always. So uh, Habakkuk does this, this, I think, exaggerated metaphor to bolster his argument, just like we might do, because he's irritated, fearful, frustrated, perplexed. So his statements in this verse 14, they're kind of inaccurate. In verse 15, he compares Babylon, the Babylonians to fishermen. He says, with hooks and great necks, eagerly harvesting whatever they pulled up, and then they return for more. And the idea is they're fishermen over the sea of humanity, pulling up humans, families, cities, nations. And then the Babylonians laugh about it. And that may very well be true. They may have laughed about it because they were so superior. Um, Habakkuk is frustrated because the Babylonians, the Babylonians rejoice and are glad because of their constant victories everywhere they went. By the way, their victories were very temporal. God's judgment will come against them, as we, as we know and have seen before. But notice here's what Habakkuk is doing at the moment. He's leaving God's sovereignty out of his reasoning. When we leave God's sovereignty out of our reasoning, we're probably going to go off the rails a little bit. And I understand, verse 16, for example, it's galling and infuriating to a faithful Jew and would be to us too. I hope it is galling to you that these Babylonians worship false gods and give their false gods credit because of their victories. In fact, what was probably happening, at least in part, the Babylonians were speaking evil of that weak, puny God of the Jews. Boy, that Jehovah. What a weak, puny, lousy God he is. He can't protect his people. The Babylonians worshiped their false gods because of their victories over their enemies. And that would mean our gods, the Babylonians would say, must be more powerful than all the gods of the nations, including that Jewish god. Now, that's hard to take. That's very hard to take for me. I hope that bothers you, too. 
that people would say that because of victories of that nature, but they did say it. And here's the question I want to pose and exhort you with and encourage you with. Um, what do people say about God because of you? What do people say about God because of your life? This is an important question to consider. Do people say anything about God because of your life or my life? If they say something about God, do they say, look how great the God of that guy is? Look how mighty the God of Gary Livengood is. Man, I want to know who that God is. Or do they say, you know, that guy's life, he, he doesn't have anything going for him. He doesn't even uh, obey God the way he preaches that others should. What do people say about God because of your relationship with Christ and the way you live? That is such an important question. And the sad truth is, and although Babel, uh, uh, Habakkuk does not acknowledge it here, the reason the Babylonians were able to say bad, negative things about the living God is because of the way the Jews were living. It was their fault that the Babylonians were able to say these things about the God of the Jews, about Jehovah. People gave credit to their gods when their army won, and, and they uh, made fun of, if you will, the gods of the people that they defeated. And this angered the faithful Jews, I'm sure, and it certainly angered a godly man like Habakkuk. Now here's an example of that, uh, a real-life example from the Old Testament. And I love this, uh, the story of David and Goliath. I love this about David. If you remember, I want to read just a few verses from 1 Samuel 17. Uh, David didn't battle against Goliath for his own glory, or even in a sense entirely for the glory of the uh, army of Israel. He, he went to battle with this giant because of the he wanted to honor the name of God, and the name of God was being taunted and demeaned. So 1 Samuel 17, I want to read verses 24 to 26. When all the men of Israel saw the man, this is Goliath, they fled from him and they were greatly afraid. The men of Israel said, and this is to David, Have you seen this man who is coming up? Surely he is coming up to defy Israel. And it will be that the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. By the way, that statement free in Israel meant free from taxes. They wouldn't have to pay taxes anymore. Wouldn't that be a nice freedom to have? Then verse 26, David spoke to the men who were standing by him saying, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? You see, David was upset there because he was taunting the armies of the living God. No one should be able to taunt the armies of the living God. Not because the armies were so great, but the God of Israel was great. He was the great, almighty, everlasting God. And no one should be taunting him. Now, you probably remember the rest of this story later in the same chapter, <clears throat> verse 45. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin. You know, the, the Philistine Goliath was very well weaponized. A sword, a spear, and a javelin. 
But, says David, I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. And this day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down, and I will remove your head from you. And I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. So we see David's motivation really ultimately was to bring glory to God and make sure the Philistines and the nations of the earth knew that the God of Israel is the true and living God. I hope you feel the uh, righteous indignation in, in David there. And I hope you have that in your own heart as well. Maybe you, like me, get sick and tired of hearing someone refer to all sorts of things in our current culture that it's something that they would say is good or this is the way we should live or this is the truth. And you know it's not what God says. That's galling. In fact, it's kind of infuriating to me. Uh, my son, one of my sons went to a, a state college, took a biology class, and during the biology class, the professor, a very brilliant guy, but he made this statement. Evolution is a proven fact. Now, look, just aside from the fact that that's a ludicrous statement, evolution is not a proven fact. And by the way, evolution is impossible to prove. By the very scientific method that somebody like that would say to believe in, evolution is impossible to prove. Um, it bothered my son, and it bothered me a lot, that this biology professor was taunting the living God, the real and living God who created the universe in, I believe, uh, six literal 24 hours a day. He did not use evolution. Um, it bothers me, and it should bother you too, um, that the living God, our Savior, our Redeemer, our Lord, the one who loved us unto death, is treated contemptuously by mere humans whose life is but a vapor, as the scripture says. And I think Habakkuk was really indignant about the Babylonians praising their false gods for their military victories. And he asked the questions, asked the question, when is this going to end? Are they just going to continue to use their net to pick up the, the families and people and nations and cities of the earth? and sweep them away and praise their false gods and rejoice and laugh and will they continue slaying nations without sparing as he says at the end of chapter 1 so Babylon is coming as we've seen in verse 1 chapter 1 they're coming for judgment Habakkuk is very frustrated very perplexed um, he's probably pretty worried and in a very human sense he should be and he ends with this chapter with saying, is this just going to continue on, Lord? Is this just going to keep going on and on? That brings us to chapter 2. And chapter 2 is so fascinating. Such a tremendous chapter with tons of prophecy about, uh, about Babylon in the time of, of Habakkuk and Ezekiel and, and Jeremiah and Daniel. And I think, as we'll see, uh, a lot of prophecy about the future Babylon that has not happened yet. We'll, we'll work through that in chapter 2. But I, I'm fascinated because the first verse, which I want to just read the first verse right now, um, and, and how Habakkuk views what has just happened. 
chapter 2, verse 1. I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart, and I will keep watch to see what he, that is God, will speak to me, and how I may reply when I am reproved. <laughs> I really like this. I love Habakkuk. He's been really angry and frustrated, and we can see why. And maybe he feels like he's been kind of shooting his mouth off at God. Now, remember, God doesn't rebuke him for this. God doesn't tell him to shut up. God allows this. God knows our frame that we are but dust, and our lives are but vapor, and he knows we're not going to have his perspective. But nonetheless, Habakkuk, Habakkuk decides it's time to kind of shut up, and he knows that maybe, maybe he's overstepped his bounds a bit. But note, this is really interesting, he has certain and sure faith that God is going to speak. God is going to tell him more truth. So he says, I'm going to stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart. It's unclear whether that is a figurative statement or a literal statement. We don't know what Habakkuk entirely did for a living, but we do know at this point he's waiting for God to speak. And there's two things about this that, that are so... Uh, so neat and, and interesting and important. Two things. First of all, Habakkuk expected God to answer. Now, he wasn't demanding God answer. He wasn't saying, God owes me an answer. But I like his expectation. I expect God to answer me. And Habakkuk says, I'm willing to wait. No matter how long it would take for God to answer, I'm, willing, I'm going to wait for him. I'm going to wait till he replies. And we don't know how long it took to God to answer to uh, Habakkuk's statements in chapter 1. Maybe it was immediately. Um, you could make that argument from the way the text proceeds, but it might not have been immediately. Maybe it was days or weeks. But God did answer. I guess my question to hear brothers, here to you, brothers and sisters, is do we pray and seek God expectantly that he will answer and yet, at the same time, with a willingness to wait. I really like that about Habakkuk's statement here. That is huge. Again, do we pray and seek God expectantly that he will answer, but also with the willingness to wait on him? And then the second thing that Habakkuk says here, and I'm going to stand here and watch how I may reply when I am reproved. And the Hebrew word for reproved here also can be uh, translated as rebuked or corrected. So he understood that, hmm, God may not be totally pleased with the attitude I've had, um, although I don't think he's necessarily talking about a punishment here. But Habakkuk had given some indication in his complaints against God that, you know, maybe God, you're not really on top of this situation. Now, that's never a great thing to tell God. Um, maybe we've all done that on some level. But we saw uh, several different times in chapter 1, right from verse 1 itself, or that rather verse 2 itself, and God kind of, or Habakkuk kind of saying to God, you're really paying attention. You really know what to do about this. How come you're letting this go on? Now this is, we've all done this. By the way, you've, we've had these situations, if you're a parent, with your children. Your child complains, you aren't being fair about something. And maybe in a temporal-looking way, you aren't. Uh, but you correct them, and maybe you even say to them, in effect, I know you don't understand this right now, but it's for your good. I've said that to my kids. 
My parents said it to me. Probably most parents have said that. Uh, this is for your own good, even if you don't understand it. And I think that's very, very much what God is saying to Habakkuk. This is for the good of my kingdom, really ultimately for the good of my people. I know you don't understand it, but this is what I'm going to do. And, and again, God does not rebuke Habakkuk for his questions. Uh, however, Habakkuk appears he might be a little nervous here. All right, now verse 2, as we begin to move into uh, the uh, prophecy aspect of chapter 2, again, a chapter very rich with, with prophecy. Um, verses 2 through 6 are, are some uh, statements about what God wants Habakkuk to do in regard to this prophecy. And then uh, ha halfway through verse 6, God begins to pronounce five woes on, on Babylon. Five woes. And he literally uses that word, woe to them, woe to him. Um, but before that, we see Habakkuk says in verse 2, the Lord answered me. And here's, I want to read to you now, at least up through verse 5, what the Lord begins to answer. All right, verse 2. Then the Lord answered me and said, Record the vision and inscribe it on tablets that the one who reads it may run. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens towards the goal and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it. Though it will certainly come, it will not delay. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by faith. And that is an incredibly important phrase that we'll talk about here eventually. But the righteous will live by faith, verse 5. Furthermore, wine betrays the haughty man so that he does not stay at home. He enlarges his appetite like Sheol, and he is like death, never satisfied. He also gathers to himself all nations and collects to himself all peoples. So, then the Lord answered me, verse 2, Habakkuk notes. I want to say to you, friends in the Lord Jesus, God never, ever ignores our prayers. He never, ever ignores the prayers of his people. When we pray in the name of Jesus, when we pray in the Spirit as Christians, God answers our prayers, always. Now, of course, there's three basic categories those prayer answers fall into. Um, he may say yes, he may say no, that's an answer. Or, as really seems most the time, at least in my, my life, the case, he may say wait. So yes, or no, or wait. But he does answer our prayers. And of course, if you've been a Christian very long, and if you've been a praying Christian, you may recognize, as I do, that answers may come in many ways that we didn't anticipate, in unexpected ways. Um, but nonetheless, he never ignores our, pra our prayers, our questions, and our concerns. By the way, the scripture is very clear. God wants to hear from us. He wants us to bring our needs and concerns to him. Um, he desires that greatly. And he says to Habakkuk, record, inscribe. And he says, on tablets. I want you to in, in, in record and inscribe on tablets what I'm about to say to you. Um, the Hebrew here, luach, the Hebrew word luach, is the same word used when God told Moses to inscribe the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone. He said to Moses, I want, I'm going to, I want these inscribed so that you can keep a hold of them 
on a permanent basis. Same word used here. Inscribe my words so that the people can understand what I'm saying to them. God want them, wants them written down, as he says, so that the one who reads it may run. We'll talk about that phrase in a minute. But I want us to understand this, how important this is. I've mentioned this before, and, I, and as I've said before, I get really frustrated when I hear um, Christian, and it seems like sometimes it's, it's most likely to come from Christian leaders, that uh, the Old Testament isn't really relevant, we don't really need it. It's not necessarily for Christians. And I'm telling you, to me, that's heresy. I don't care who says it, that's heresy. And the reason it's heresy is because that's not what God says. He says, write this stuff down so people can read it. And as I've noted before, 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, Paul says, these things were written for our sake. The things from the Old Testament were written down, written down rather for our sake so that we could read, learn, study what God is up to and how he acts. So don't, I guess if you're listening to Habakkuk, a, a podcast series on Habakkuk, you're not ignoring the Old Testament, but don't, don't. It's every bit as important and viable as the New Testament. So God wants this written down. And, and I, I alluded to, in, while I was reading there, the phrase in verse 4 for especially, but the righteous will live by faith, uh, that became one of the most important and powerful and really revolutionary statements in Scripture. And God wants that written down. We'll talk about that next week when we get to verse 4. But that phrase from this obscure book of Habakkuk is the most quoted phrase in the New Testament. Not a psalm, not something that Moses wrote, not something from Daniel or Isaiah. This obscure book of Habakkuk it has the single most quoted phrase from it in the New Testament. The righteous shall live by faith. More about that when we get to that actual verse. So was it important to write, down, write it down? Yes. It was incredibly important. And it was important because God said it was important. Now this statement about uh, there in, in verse 2, at the end of verse 2, that the one who reads it may run. It's a difficult verse. The one who reads it may run. It does not say the one who runs may read it. The proper Hebrew construction is the one who reads it may run. There's kind of two views on exactly what that means. Uh, first of all, the idea might be that uh, the one who reads it may run. There was oftentimes when there was a, a dire situation that um, a message had to go out to the uh, cities of the nation of Israel or Judah, or an important message needed to go out to the army about a battle, that there would be a runner. <clears throat> and the one who the message would give it, was given to would run and bring it out to the, the troops or out to the cities of the nation. So they would understand what was going on. They would run out to different places in the city or out to the military, and uh, they would tell the message. So the one who reads this message may run. I don't know if that's the meaning of it. Honestly, it may be the second possibility, which could be this. The one who runs, this may have the sense of being a metaphor for life. Uh, here, running life in view of God's written truth. And this is, by the way, a metaphor that's used in both the first, the Old and New Testament. Uh, life being uh, something that we run through. Uh, Psalm 119 talks about that. 
1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27 talks about that. Paul talks about running the race. So it may mean that. It may just be a metaphor for life. We run the race of life, and as we're running, we should read God's Word. I'm not sure which one it is. Maybe it has truth in both statements. But here's the point. Pay attention to God's answers. Pay attention to what God says as you're going through life. It is the absolute key to living life God's way. Here's something I've experienced as a pastor. People will come to me and say, you know, I've got this situation in my life, and uh, here's the circumstances. What should I do? What does the Bible say? What does God say about it? And so I'm always happy to have those questions, and I like to answer them, hopefully, hopefully as biblically as possible. But what drives me nuts is when I say, well, here's what the Bible appears to be saying about your circumstance. And that person goes out and does the opposite of what the Scripture says. And you know what happens then? They come back weeks, months, or even years later and say, you know, I, I didn't listen to you, and things have gotten much worse. Yeah, that's because you didn't pay attention to God's answer. I want to encourage you with this reality. God has given you in the Word the answer to every single possible circumstance you can face in your life. He has given you the answer. The more you live His way, the more blessed your life will be. And the more you go the opposite of His direction, the more difficult and painful your life will be and eventually the circumstances will be worse and worse because you will reap what you sowed. I'm going to end this session right there. We'll pick it up next week in verse 3 and to begin working through Habakkuk chapter 2 and the prophecies about Babylon. Thank you so much for listening. God bless you.